Election Studio on Cambridge 105 Radio. We've just three days to go before the general election. Good morning, I'm Julian Clover and welcome to Election Studio, your next MP. This morning we'll hear from the SDP candidate in Cambridge, Jane Robbins. Uh, but first, uh, we'll turn our attention to the Harlow councillor who's standing for the Conservatives, Russell Perrin. And I spoke to him yesterday lunchtime. Russell, thank you very much for joining us on Election Studio. Thank you for having me. I figure you might be in a unique position to judge this. You're a councillor in Harlow at the moment and looking to take Cambridge for the Conservatives in the general election. So what's it like being a Conservative in a Remain city? It depends who you talk to. It's a fairly... Um, you, it's a mixed bag. I meet lots of Labour voters that are disappointed with um, Jeremy Corbyn, who voted to leave um, but feel that they've been let down. Equally, I meet people that have voted to remain but respect the democratic process and cannot believe that the opposition parties are messing about with this issue. They just want it done now. And, of course, I'd be, I'd be disingenuous if I said I didn't come across people that say, I voted to remain, I, I want to remain, so I'm voting... Um, because Cambridge, Cambridge, as you'll know, is uh, the most remaining part... Of the UK, only yes. one place voted more, and that was Gibraltar. So, doesn't so as far as where we are here, yeah, in in, in the city, more more crosses uh, wanted to um, remain than, than leave. The thing I, I think I found is, despite that, the people in Cambridge are very global, outlooking. They are Democrats, and even though a vast, they, as you say, they are the largest voting. Um, group of people that voted to remain, they can see the benefits from moving on and getting this thing done now because they can see the whole of Westminster's gummed up with this issue. It's taking all the political energy out of Westminster. And I think they can see the benefits to us just getting the deal done and moving on because there is a deal there and it's a, it's a good deal which will allow us to be an outward-looking international country and I think a lot of people here just want to move on with that. Mm. I live in the next street uh, from the studios here, as, mm -hmm. as listeners will know. Um, I've got dozens of Labour and Lib Dem leaflets. Not one from the Conservatives Have yet. Have not? Uh, in fairness, not one from anybody else but the Lib Dems and, and Labour. Do, do you feel that you're getting enough support from head office or back office in order to put a few leaflets through, even when you're not yes. necessarily in the city or as yourself? Well, I've... Got team. I've got a team out this morning that are out. We have a battle van that goes around the city. We've got leafleters out this morning. We've got canvassing teams out this morning. And I'm in Cambridge um, most evenings because I'm a teacher by trade. So um, year 11 don't like it when I'm not teaching their physics lessons, unfortunately. So I do have to earn a living. But I'm here most evenings, either with the team or 
or out in, in the van. Um, so, yeah, I get lots of support. How does a teacher become a Conservative? Um, normally, one might expect, you know, the, the stereotypical uh, picture of a teacher is with the you know, plastic patches on the, on, on the arms and a co- <laughs> copy of The Guardian on the desk. Perhaps. Um, weirdly enough, in my school, they do have The Guardian in the staff room. And I do have a jacket with those patches on. But, I, you know, this is often something that comes up. I don't see why um, the left has a monopoly on education or indeed any of the public services. I meet lots of teachers that vote Conservative, but they don't say it out loud because there is a very vocal minority that will shout them down. And so they just think it's not worth the time and effort. And it's the same in public service. My best friend's a doctor. and My campaign manager works in the NHS. So, you know, there are lots of... My aunt's a midwife. Sorry, a a midwife and a sister. Um, My mother was a phlebotomist in the NHS. In fact, out of all of the candidates, I've probably got more friends and family in the public services than than they do. So how do you react then to the, oh, the Conservatives are going to sell off the NHS? What's your immediate reaction like that, knowing the the people you do? Well, I can't give you my immediate reaction because we're live on air and probably children are listening, but I would say it's complete rubbish if I was being polite. And you think about it, 71 years the NHS has been in existence, 44 of those have been under Conservative government. If we'd wanted to sell it off, we would have done it by now. Now, I heard those arguments from your, your counterpart in, in South Cambridgeshire, Anthony mm. Brown, last, last week, which is true. You know, the Conservatives have been in, in power more since the creation of the NHS at the end of the Second World War than, um, than not. But people do worry. People look at services which were provided by the council, directly, and they're now provided by private firms. So you don't have to go too far before you think, oh, a pharmacy service within the NHS could be contracted out. You could have a privately run hospital. I think we have had a few under the um, public-private partnership. I know you will tell me that was Labour. Yes. But there's still that the Conservatives could go that direction again and further. This is see. This is you've you touched upon one of the things that's one of the continual frustrations for a conservative is under a Labour government under under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown who had the public um, financing initiative which saw the biggest privatisation of the NHS in its history. But many people, maybe many people in today's party, I think probably including Mr Corbyn, where he was here, he'd mm. almost ignore that uh, well, uh, Brown Blair period as being a different different party anyway. They do, but if we are talking about Labour and conservative. There is no track record of us doing what Labour have done. Labour have nationalised, uh, sorry, privatised more of the National Health Service than the Conservatives ever have, yet the Labour Party are always the ones to come out and say, beware, beware. And we've seen recently that the dodgy dossier that Mr Corbyn has published, um, which he thought showed that we were trying to sell off the NHS, which has later been proven not to be true, has now got actually Russian links and reading in the newspaper on your table out there. Um... It just proves that Mr Corbyn can't be trusted. I think it's been proven that it's Russian. It's just well, they, they are as a suspect as possibly might, the, might have been involved. The, so, the social media um, platform Reddit have said that they come from um, Russian accounts. Yeah, not the version that Mr Corbyn was showing, I think, but uh, something, uh, sort of a, a, he managed to get a, a later he, a version, later di- version directly rather than the, uh, the version released on Reddit. But I, I take the point, yes. obviously. So my, my, general, my general point is, when you look at judge us on our actions and judge judge us on on what we're saying 
We've had the opportunity to do it. We've never done it. Labour have, have privatised more of the National Health Service than any other party in, uh, in government. And the first thing that comes out of their mouths when we go into an election campaign is beware the Tories, they're going to privatise the National Health Service. So I, I give it no... I have no... Tr- and if there, if there was something which came up, say, say you were to be elected and mm-hmm. something comes up in Parliament and it is, it's the creation of for the sake of argument, I'm making this up, is not in anybody's manifesto. Mm. Three privately run hospitals, how would you vote? Would you vote for that or against it? I wouldn't... On a free vote. Yeah, on a free vote. I wouldn't vote for privatising the NHS, period. I just wouldn't do it. Okay, Just wouldn't do it. Brexit, um, obviously, we mentioned, we touched on that at the, at the start of the interview. How, how did you vote yourself in, in the referendum? I voted to leave. You voted to leave? Yes. And Why? And why? Because I felt, amongst other things, that the institutions of the European Union are anti-democratic and I saw that the interests of our country were counter to what the European Union was doing. And so I looked at, um, you know, the, the legal framework that we work within, with the European Court of... Justice, we were um, subordinate to all the time. I didn't like the fact that we had unelected commissioners. If it's just left, if it stops at the Supreme Court, which presumably it would do once once we leave, would that, um, you know, do you really think it's going to make radically different decisions to what came came from the European Union? Well, I believe in a self-determining country, and I think well, we can make those decisions. And too often, we talk about accountability. In, in cricket, our... you have a, a neutral umpire, so are they not mm. acting as... Uh, to, to, to keep everybody on a, on, a, on a level field? Well, our judges, I'm sure, are very capable of uh, making those decisions themselves. And the point here is we, we're a country that, you know, it, the European Union it grew out of all, all control, in my opinion. And we often hear of people that are concerned that we're going to leave the European Union, that perhaps they haven't had the right or the chance, sorry, to have their say on the issue. I never got given the chance to say whether I wanted to be in the European Union or not. But I've had to work within that framework all my life, and so have many other people. And we can see that there are many benefits to being outside of the European Union. So what does that post, post-world post look like? Assuming the um, uh, Boris does get his... Uh a Brexit deal done mm-hmm. in the microwave or wherever wherever he chooses chooses to put it. What um, what does the world look like afterwards? The world looks the, the world. Well, looks, I, I, I'm I know, just thinking from the perspective of we we go abroad. Yes. Do we do we get to um, to whiz through the blue channel still by some arrangement, or are we um, sat there for you know an hour twiddling our thumbs? Well, if anybody's travelled to France recently, they know it can take more than an hour to get to France. So being held up... It takes more than an hour to get back into the UK sometimes, but that is through the Blue Channel. Exactly. So don't think that after we leave the European Union, um, if there's a delay um, getting to or from the... Europe, that that's being caused because we've left the European Union. At the moment, I know people have tried to get across to France, it's taken them 11 hours. So mm. we need to bear that in mind. But in terms of a wider perspective, we'll be making trade deals around the world. We'll be an internationally outward-looking country still. We still will want to work with our European partners because there's lots of benefits to working closely. You see, now, a friend, a friend of mine who uh, is, is European, I won't mm-hmm. say from which, which territory, but uh, she says that she's made to feel welcome 
in in Cambridge mm-hmm. by because you probably know twenty percent of people in Cambridge have a passport other other than British, mm. but she doesn't see that same view coming from the, from the country as a whole anymore. Well, I, I obviously I've not spoken to your friend, and I can't can't say why. But a lot of people like... do have that sort of sort of. I could I could yeah. give you a long list of European friends of mine who. Um, and I have, uh, I have I have similar e- issues. I have equally a long list, and I work with a lot of people that come from across the European Union as well. And the government has turned around and said that those people will be welcome to stay, that their rights will be protected in law, so they have nothing to fear. So in terms of being welcome, they are welcome. Um, what will change going forward is that if you wish to come and work or live in the European, uh, in the United Kingdom, you will have to follow or have to meet the criteria in our new points-based immigration system. But if you're already here, if you're already resident in the UK, you're welcome. Your rights are protected, and, and the government's been categorical to, you know, on that. Like, like me, you'll you'll go into restaurants and you'll be served by somebody from a European country, maybe not necessarily always a European country, could be served, but your, mm. the chances are, generally speaking, you're not very often served by by, by some somebody British. How are you going to have uh, no... I try to denigrate the, the job of serving serving tables, uh, particularly some of them, their maps as a dancer better than mine is. Mm. But you don't need a point system for that, do you? Well, but what you can't have is completely uncontrolled borders because what you've got is over 500 million people that are free to come here. Well, I think it was the Conservatives who sort of ruled out um, the, the note that things used to be made of people coming in and going out. We, um, <laughs> you could bring something like that in and then you'd have a, have a, a fairer way and then well, people who'd come in by means where they haven't got permission. The point here is there are a thousand different ways you can do it, but whichever way you decide to do it, it will be your democratically elected national government that will make that decision when we leave the European Union and it won't be um, a bunch of 27 other countries that will be making those rules up for us and so if you like we were one of we still are yeah as we said one of one of those countries making the rules we, we are but at the end of this whatever issue that a person has whether it be with immigration trade law uh domestic policy you can look at the government you've elected and you can say, I like that and I'll vote for you. Or I don't like that and I'm not going to vote for you. And that's the crucial thing for me with this. And moving forward, we just need to move past this point because it was a democratic decision to um, leave the European Union. And so we can we can have a discussion about all the finer points of what will happen here. But that's the point, isn't it? We will be able to make those decisions and elect or unelect a government based on whether we like what they're doing. Now, I notice you hold the shadow finance portfolio, I think it is, on, uh, on, on Harlow, Harlow Council. Well, what do you think of the various spending plans of not just the Conservatives, but the, the other parties, the Lib Dems and also, also the Labour Party? Well, it seems to have been um, who, can, who can come up with the biggest number in terms of Labour and Liberal, in terms of their spending plans, who can outbid the, the previous party. And I was particularly um, fascinated by the Labour Party's bid to plant, I think it was, and uh, I, I stand to be corrected, but I think it was over 2 billion trees in 20 years, or, or some ridiculous number of trees, I can't remember the exact number. But when the maths was worked through, it meant planting 600 trees every minute. Uh, and sometimes the numbers just seem to just roll off the tongue and they don't seem to, to add up. And I think at the last estimate, Labour were going to be putting 1.2 trillion um 
to our to our debt figure. Because it seems strange, because the Conservatives have rode back, gone not aust- austerity seems to be gradually being being pushed out the way. But if you look at what the Institute for Fiscal Studies have said, they've said that up outside of health, um, spending in Britain would still be 14% lower by 23, 24, 20, 23, 20, 24 the year than it was in 2010, 2011. So it, uh, on, the, on the one hand, the Conservatives, you're saying, yeah, we're going to spend, spend more than we have been, but it's mm. still pulled back by some distance from, from the levels um, that we enjoyed 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But we know that over 10 years ago, the country was racking up a huge deficit. Uh, and the fact of the matter is you can't carry on doing that. Now, what the government's turned around and said is they are prepared to borrow to invest in capital projects. And they've uh, set out that that will be up to a limit of 3% of GDP. And that if um, debt repayment interest goes beyond 6% of our of our annual um revenue turnover, they will relook at the fiscal rules that govern our, ben- our spending. So we've actually got a framework within which we can invest in capital projects because we can see that investment in infrastructure, investment in, and that be road, rail, um, gigabyte, uh, broadband or indeed in the the infrastructure of schools and hospitals, they have a benefit which stimulates um, the economy and, and benefits us all. What we don't believe in is... Um, unhinged spending in terms of consumption day-to-day spending and which is where there is a major difference between us and the other political parties because that's when you get out of control public spending and in the end like an elastic band it twangs back and smacks you uh, and we'll end up in a situation where if we don't keep a responsible fiscal framework in another 10 15 20 years time somebody will be having to put the brakes on everything again and going why is there another mm, austerity okay. measure i should say the ifs i don't think it was particularly convinced by any of the uh, the party's uh, fiscal promises but i'll i'll leave those sorts of calculations to those people who have that's a little bit more than my maths so mm. level um Russell, we're, we are out of time, but thank you very much uh, for, for joining us in Election Studio this morning. Thank you for inviting me. And that was Russell Perrin, who is the Conservative candidate standing in Cambridge. Uh, now to a candidate from the SDP. Yes, the SDP. Uh, they are back and they are fielding 20 candidates across the country and among them in Cambridge, Jane Robbins. And Jane, the first thing I notice is that if you look up the record books, you are the first SDP candidate to stand in Cambridge since 1987 when it was Shirley Williams. I know, you just told me that and I was amazed because I I didn't know it. But I feel, um, well, honoured, I suppose. Because many people would be surprised that the SDP is even around. If you mention it to anybody, they'll say, well, didn't you merge with the Liberals? So... What's the story there? Uh, It's quite a story. I mean, I I would have said that myself until extremely recently. Uh, So what's happened with the party is it's kind of um, reinventing itself. It's got a new leader, William Clouston, and um, it's uh, putting forward a number of policies that really are suitable for a post-Brexit world. So we're we're talking about the last few years and... uh, The idea is we need a new party of the left uh, because we feel that Labour has lost its way. 
and we need a party that's rooted in uh, concerns about community, social cohesion, um, but has also economic policies that are going to cover um, the concerns of the people who uh, need help the most in our society. So the idea in a nutshell is that we want to take the space uh, that Labour's left behind in its heartlands. We want to connect back to working people and uh, we want to have a good social democratic system without bankrupting the country. And we are really fearful that the Labour policies are so extreme that they're going to cause far more harm than good. So we're trying to take that space, which is why I decided to run here in Cambridge. So are you trying to go to the kind of position that maybe Labour held under under Tony Blair, not necessarily following all of the policies that the Blair administration did? Uh, I think that Tony Blair Blair era is now so tainted that I wouldn't say that. I, you know, the, Tony but is, it, is it tainted beyond the issues regarding foreign policy? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, but my instinct is to say uh, that we're connecting back to Labour of Peter Shaw, of Barbara Castle, of... Uh, so this is into the 1970s, with but, the kind of era that is being defined in the crown at the moment. I, I would say yes in spirit, but uh, also taking on board what we've learned about how the economy works. So I would say we're far more up to date on economy, but we are um, rooted in that spirit of speaking for the working person, because uh, the Labour Party now, back when, when the Labour Party was formed, about 70% of its MPs came from working class backgrounds. That's now down to about 7%. And we see that as a huge problem in our politics in this country, because we've got a political class uh, what you might call Davos man and Davos woman, uh, who are disconnected from such a huge swathe of the voters, which is why um, there's been all these problems around the implementation of Brexit. Are you talking about the kind of politician who maybe starts off as a researcher in an MP's office and then a, a little while later they they find themselves uh, with, a, with a, a seat somewhere? I would say we start even younger than that. They probably went to a nice prep school, then a decent public school, and then a very good university, maybe Cambridge, um, or PPE from Magdalen College, Oxford, and then they're fast-tracked into uh, jobs uh, in the law, in the media, in politics. Um, and this is the disconnect that I think is the big cultural issue of our time. And I've been knocking on a lot of doors in King's Hedges and Arbury, and I'm saying, where are these people in politics now? Where are they? Are you also taking a look at the kind of seats in, say, the north-east of Britain that the Brexit Party might be interested in because they also see that opportunity in picking up on votes that would have previously gone to Labour? Uh, well, we are only running 20 candidates across the country because we're trying to... Uh, build something from the grassroots up and we are a seedling and this um, election is about us just kind of 
putting a stake in the ground. And I'm hoping to get, I hope people will look at our party online and join up. It's very cheap because we really, really want to start something here in Cambridge that builds up a sort of honest, decent left party. Now, what's going on with the Brexit party in the north um, feels to me a bit more top down. You know, it's Nigel Farage, uh, who's been around forever, has um, a particular agenda. And the party, of course, is sort of splitting at the minute with the so many of the Tories leaving it. And I think that there are people within the Brexit party who are really good people who would like to do this, would like to build something new um, that breaks the mould of our politics. Uh, but where they're going to go, I, 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 just, I, I find it really hard to tell at the minute. Mm. And to be clear on the SDP's own Brexit policy, where, where do you stand? Leave? Remain? Well, we think it's really important that we honour the result of the uh, 2016 right. and, and what did you vote in, the, in that referendum? I voted leave. Um, and An easy decision for you, or did you have to sort of, you know, sit, sit down and... And, and ponder the, the various options that were put forward. It was a really interesting decision because I, I thought I could go either way. And um, my background's in economics. I was a foreign correspondent and I'd written a lot about the EU over the years for The Economist newspaper. And I knew how much harm it did in some of the poorest countries in the world. And um, I also had educated myself for, about the grotesque lack of democracy and I instinctively thought that our future is is better if we leave and the risks of staying in are higher than the risks of leaving but I was quite scared by Project Fear and I think what gave me the courage to vote leave was listening to Mervyn King the former Bank of England yeah Bank no. of England Mervyn King um, who was just so clear he was saying that this Project Fear it, it is hysterical all we're looking at is a few points, uh, I mean, fractions of points off potential GDP growth when it's famously difficult to predict GDP growth anyway, especially 10 years out, 20 years out. And I feel that the opportunities of Brexit um, are much um, under-talked about. And but I would also like to say that the SDP is not for leavers, it's for everybody. And there are a huge number of people who voted Remain. My family, most of my family voted Remain, who um, want us to just get on with it, honour a democratic decision. So what do you think the Lib Dem pledge, of course, which has got them into a little bit of hot water in some quarters of saying, well, actually, if, if we get into power, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just scrap it, not even go back for a second referendum? Well, I, I think it's disgraceful because um, we live in a democracy. That's not how we do things. Mm. If you vote for something, it should be implemented. And uh, the idea that, uh, as I say, Davos people, because they're all from the same political class, are going to turn around and say, oh, no, we don't like what you did, so... Uh, with a mandate of far fewer votes than ever voted in the referendum, we're just going to turn it on its head. This and, is and like this is the sort of thing Erdogan would do in Turkey. It's not the sort of thing that a mature democracy should do. And would you consider? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming your answer might be no, but you know, nev never assume mm. in these things. 
the SDP, um, would you do a second referendum? No, we're not in favour of a second referendum. And the reason, uh, there are many reasons. One is that you, you implement one electoral decision before you then discuss others. Um, but I also believe in my heart that it would solve nothing. It would cause more division. And um, if you imagine that Remain won slightly, but with fewer votes than Leave got last time, or uh, what happens then? What do we do? Third referendum? Or um, I, I actually think that Leave would win with a bigger margin if we had a second referendum. But I also think, why the hell should we have to vote again? Because Leave voters voted in the referendum. They voted for uh, parties that promised that they would honour the referendum in a general election. They voted again for Leave in the Euro elections. Just how many times have people got to vote for something before our political class will implement it? OK, understood. Let's take a look then maybe at some of the... Other policies which uh, the SDP has on offer, obviously uh, in Cambridge you'll be well aware of the difficulties of, of getting around the city, getting out of the city. Mm. What is the view with regards to, to public transport? Would you have it as, it as it stands now? Would you bring it back into some kind of national ownership? Yeah, the SDP is in favour of rail nationalisation. It thinks that, the party thinks that the, um, the system as it is, is not efficient. It's not efficiently run. Um, in, in that sense, we're quite statist. Um, but um, we would scrap HS2 and we would invest that money into rail services. Even with all the money which has gone, gone into HS2 already? Yeah, we've made the calculation that it's much cheaper to scrap it than to continue um, because the estimates go up and up and up. Um, and we are committed to uh, rural bus services. We're committed to... So subsidise rural bus services, in other words? Yes, that's right. Um, and we want oyster cards everywhere. So um, this is the system, I guess most people know in Cambridge, but the system that you use to, 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 to get around London and would be nice if it worked around Cambridge between Stagecoach and Whippet as well, perhaps. Exactly. Um, you know, we... There's, there's no point having three or four different systems when in this day and age we should be able to simplify that. So it's like Cambridge Station. I think you can go up to Kings Lynn with uh, some uh, uh, card, and, but you can't actually go down the other way towards London with, on the same operator right now. Uh, well, my, I'm puzzled by Cambridge Station because <laughs> they have the um, Anglia machines, but you can't buy a King's Cross ticket yes. on an Anglia <laughs> machine so you have to get into the queue I think why <laughs> I mean there must be a story behind that but I it's I think I think that's a whole other uh, you know yeah. a whole, other, whole other show possibly running for several weeks as well just 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 to explain that one so uh, that's transport in in terms of the climate itself is there anything that the SDP in particular would do to take as we know the um, the pressure, the amount of carbon emissions go going out. What what do we do there? Well, on environment, um, we we have. A, what I want to say actually is that we are a young party and we're still making a lot of our policies. And this is 
one of the reasons why I want listeners to get involved and help us shape some of our policies. Um, and so please look at our website. And um, so our environmental policies at the minute are not... Um, they're not as well developed as, as as they will be within the next year. That's a pretty important issue of our of our time for not not to have not to have a policy on. No, we've got policies. I mean, I can tell you what they are, but but I think it's more interesting to tell you something else. So the policies are: we meet the global our global edge uh, obligations. We have direct incentives for environmentally friendly products. Uh, we build environmental. Um, considerations into building regulations we are in favor of 25 pence on disposable cups um and we what do you do about, disposable cups what do you um, do about the carrier bags it was just recently in the news wasn't it that the the bags for life turn out to be just high-tech versions of the ones we always used to throw away and, and damage the environment that way instead well this is what i wanted to talk about what i want to talk about is this that um, I'm working on a book at the minute uh, with a colleague who knows a lot more about this than I do, um, and it's about a concept uh, called effective kindness. And um, the essence of it is that we look at what are the true outcomes that help, rather than engage in the emotions that make us want to help. And I think it's a particularly um, relevant one for environment. So, for instance, um, we can ban plastic straws, but the biggest problem... I mean, this country doesn't put plastic into the ocean. Uh, the biggest problem on plastic in the ocean is five great rivers of the world where there are no dustbin men, but huge amounts of plastic are just dumped into the Ganges and other rivers. So oh, That's the problem, isn't it? You can set laws in your, your own country, but unless everybody else plays ball around, around the world, you're not really going to um, make the difference that you'd perhaps want to make. And, and I, I don't see the point about becoming hysterical about um, policies that are, that are actually going to make no difference. Mm. Uh, I think we've got to de-emotionalise it and think with clear heads about the policies that um, will give us cleaner air in Cambridge, uh, will reduce plastic use, but are not all we do. It's, because there's a lot of... I mean, I hate this term, virtue signalling, and I'm trying to find some different word for it. But um, there's, there's a great uh, young PhD student at Cambridge University doing a, a, a PhD on something that he calls luxury beliefs, where you just... It, so that, so a, a certain class of person signals that they're a good person by engaging with certain luxury beliefs that may, in fact cause um, bad consequences for the people they're claiming to be helping. And there's quite a lot of work going into this. And so that's why I'm saying I, I'd love it if people got involved and if we, if we could have a proper intellectual discussion uh, on issues that are the big issues of the day, like the environment. The way things yeah. are going, there'll be another general election in a couple of years anyway, so an, an opportunity to test out um, 
some of the some of those policies. One, we haven't got too much time left, but obviously another issue in in Cambridge and across the UK is always the health service. Yeah. What's what? How does the SDP look at look at that? Is is it simply a matter of putting more money in, or is it where that money in particular should go? Well, we're we're definitely in favour of spending more um, on the NHS as a proportion of our GDP. Um, and putting it into frontline services. And we are also in favour of setting up a national care service uh, so that in later life um, there will be a limit on how much of your own money you have to spend on social care. And then after that limit, the state would step in and um, you will get support from the state. So that's one of those areas which kind of overlaps, I think, the the health service itself. And sometimes I think it falls within the the county council as well, doesn't it, to, to look after... Yeah, it can be quite a mess at the minute because, you know, there are people in uh, stuck in hospital who shouldn't be in hospital because the local authority won't take them and give them the care they need in order to be at home. So that's a, a rationalisation that we're looking at. And also there's just so much distress around this uh, because uh, social care for elderly people who who shouldn't be in hospital but, but are struggling... Um, especially if they haven't got family around to look after them. It's a, it's a terrible situation and, and it's one of our priorities to really try and sort something out. OK, well, well Jane, we're out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you very much for, I, I guess, revealing the new SDP, if I, might, uh, if, if I might call them that. Jane Robbins, thanks very much for, well, for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Jane Robbins of the SDP. I should tell you that there are a total of eight candidates standing in Cambridge in the parliamentary election. They are Jeremy Caddick for the Green Party, Rod Cantrell for the Liberal Democrats, Peter Dorr for the Brexit Party, Keith Garrett, Rebooting Democracy, Miles Hurley for the in, uh, is an Independent, uh, Russell Perrin for the Conservatives, Jane Robbins, as you heard there, a Social Democratic Party, and Daniel Zeichner of the Labour Party. And it's Daniel Zeichner who will be speaking to on the programme tomorrow at nine o'clock. And if you've missed any of our other interviews with candidates in both Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire, you will find them on our website and also on the Radio Player app as well. Slightly longer than we have been this past few days, but coming next, we've got Ashley Capaldi after the travel. (laughs) 